2: Podcast network, iHeart Radio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Presented by AT and T, connecting changes everything.
3: School of Humans. On the last episode of Helen Gone Murder Line, I discussed the case of Jared Green, a twenty-year-old young man who went missing from Cersey, Arkansas, on September thirtieth, nineteen ninety-four. We talked to Jared's sister, Shannon, who's been fighting to get justice for her brother for almost 30 years. She told me the pain that she and her parents had gone through when they discovered that Jared had developed a drug habit. And as he began to descend further and further into methamphetamine addiction, he started hanging out more and more with Brandon Wheeler and Robert Webb, two guys he knew from high school. According to police, Brandon and Robert were involved in drug dealing they'd given Jared a large quantity of meth somehow he ended up owing Brandon and Robert a lot of money somewhere between $7,500 and $8,000 on September 30th Jared left home and met a friend at the Cersei Country Club this friend told police that Jared got a gun back from him and that he was scared that night that he planned to meet with Brandon Wheeler and smooth things over regarding this debt after that night Jared Green disappeared His abandoned car was found a few days later at a Walmart Supercenter. The keys were underneath the front seat. The windows were rolled down. Jared Green's family has never seen him since that day. It's been almost 30 years, and Jared Green's family wants answers and justice. I'm Katherine Townsend. Over the past five years of making my true crime podcast, Hell and Gone, I've learned that there is no such thing as a small town where murder never happens. I have received hundreds of messages from people all around the country asking for help with an unsolved murder that's affected them, their families, and their communities. If you have a case you'd like me and my team to look into, you can reach out to us at our Hell and Gone murder line at 678-744-6145. That's 678-744-6145. Just a few weeks after Jared Green went missing, police find out the people he allegedly owed money to, Brandon Wheeler and Robert Webb, have left town and that their rental house is caught on fire. Fortunately, the fire did not burn down the entire house, but police later said that it looked like someone poured accelerant in the garage. Clearly, this seemed like arson, but no charges were ever filed. Now police were trying to track down Brandon Wheeler and Robert Webb. They talked to another neighbor, a woman named Shelby Watson, who lived next door to the house Brandon and Robert had been renting. Shelby said she was in her late teens at the time. She lived with her parents, and she started hanging out at the guy's residence in August. Not surprisingly, because these guys always had money and drugs, it seemed to have become kind of a neighborhood party house. While she was hanging out there, Shelby said she met a guy who called himself Felix. And again, figuring out who these people really are, who Felix really was, is part of the mystery. Shelby said she and Felix kinda hit it off. They became friends. But then she said in late September, Felix disappeared. He had told her he lived in Tennessee, so Shelby thought maybe he was moving back there. She said that she got worried. She told police that Felix owed Brandon something like $10,000. But unlike Jared Green, Felix reappeared. When she asked him about the money, he said basically, don't worry about it, I've already paid it back. Shortly after that, though, she said Felix disappeared for good, and she never saw him after that. So what we have are a lot of people dropping in and out of that house, a lot of people who potentially owe Brandon and Robert a lot of money, and who seem to mysteriously disappear. But police did reveal in the investigative file that they have figured out Felix's real name, Baron Stafford. Honestly, as an investigator, I know, as other listeners of this podcast know, that I've had my problems with law enforcement in the past. But the frustrating part is that the bad police officers out there really make the job of the good police officers, the ones who diligently are working for justice, so much harder. And there was an investigator in this case named Tim Webb Looking back at his work, at least the written notes, it seems like he was trying to track these people down. Tim Webb wanted to find Baron Stafford, the guy who had been known as Felix. He said that he tried all the phone numbers that he had for Baron Stafford, but got no response. Then he said he talked to Baron's brother, who told them Baron was out of town and that Baron was not coming back to Cersei. So now you have Brandon and Robert, who have both vanished without a trace without police ever talking to them, and now Baron Stafford was gone too. And the reason that he wanted to find him was because Tim Webb looked through the phone records for Brandon and Robert's landline, and he saw a lot of calls between their rental house in North Little Rock and Baron Stafford's house. In fact, the last call from Baron Stafford's residence to Robert and Brandon's house was on October fourth, nineteen ninety four, at ten thirty AM The calls continued between Brandon and Robert to a residence in Nashville, Tennessee. From reading through these notes, it seems like Tim Webb developed a theory that Baron Stafford had gone to Nashville and that he was staying with family there. This could have been crucial because Tennessee was also somewhere where Jared had gone in the past and mentioned to his family that he could be going. In December, Tim Webb got in touch with Metro Nashville Police, He asked for help figuring out the location of this telephone number that Brandon and Robert had been calling. And he did his due diligence. He also called the phone company. Both the phone company and Nashville police confirmed that there was a phone number on Berwick Trail in Nashville, Tennessee. They found the woman that this phone belonged to. They identified her as a woman named Sherry Dotson. And this is just another heartbreak, in my opinion, because... Tim Webb asked for permission to go to Nashville. He wanted to do surveillance on that house. He wanted to see if Baron Stafford was at that residence in Nashville. But his bosses told him basically to forget it and to request that the Nashville Police Department send someone over. And the Nashville police seemed to kind of blow Tim Webb off. I'm not blaming them, they were really busy. I know that there's investigative red tape people have to go through administrative procedure, but it seems crazy that for the sake of a five-hour drive, they could not just let this officer who clearly cared about the case ride over to Nashville and check out this residence. This also, by the way, seems like one of these cases where if someone like me or another licensed private investigator was allowed to help police, perhaps they could fill in some of those gaps. Unfortunately, Tim Webb seemed to hit a dead end. In the investigative notes, Police stated they did figure out that Robert Webb and Brandon Wheeler were dealing large quantities of methamphetamine in Searcy and White Counties. They said that an Arkansas State police investigator had actually tried to make a deal with Brandon and Robert to try to make them confidential informants, but it hadn't worked out. From Tim Webb's notes, it seems like he was very frustrated that he could not go to Nashville, that he got stonewalled, and that nothing happened. In 1995, Tim Webb tried again. There's a handwritten note in the case file saying, quote, "On eight three ninety five, I met with Chief Thomas in reference to the information I had to express my views on follow up investigations, which might require some time and the need for some assistance. Chief Thomas advised me I needed to get with him on the thirty first for further instructions." End quote. Then there's another memo about Chief Thomas saying there would be an investigator helping Tim Webb two days a week. And then another note saying the investigator who had been assigned was extremely busy on several other cases. So I'm going to go back to Tim Webb's notes to some of the very legitimate questions he was trying to answer about this case. One of them involves the mysterious phone calls. Remember, there was a mysterious caller who called police and identified himself as Jared Green's father. Shannon said this was an impersonator. That never happened. On October 10th, 1994, Jared Green's girlfriend, S., told police that someone called her workplace. They didn't identify themselves, but they told her, this mystery caller, that Jared was okay. So I'm wondering, who was that person? Who was calling the police, saying they were Jared's father? Who called Jared's girlfriend's workplace and said that they were Jared's friend? Was it the same person? I want to understand more about that person and why they were trying to mislead the investigation. And obviously, I'm also wondering, the screaming red flag, what was the story with Robert Webb and Brandon Wheeler? Why didn't the police ever talk to them after they left town? It turned out the police did want to talk to Robert Webb, but they couldn't. Because sometime in the summer of 1995, Robert Webb disappeared. Hey, y'all, it's Catherine. As you know from hell and gone, crime can happen to anyone at any time. When it comes to home security, your best line of defense is your diligence and preparation. That's why I recommend Simply Safe Home Security. Obviously, we cannot control everything that happens out there in the world, but when I'm in my own home, I feel very reassured by the fact that I have a home security system. And Simply Safe is affordable, easy to use, and crucially, it's easy to get started with and then build on later as you need more functionality. They have a huge variety of indoor and outdoor cameras. It's backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day, with no contracts and a 60-day money-back guarantee. Get 20% off any new SimpliSafe system when you sign up for fast protect monitoring. Just visit SimplySafe.com slash That's simplisafe.com slash There's no safe like simply safe. Robert Webb went missing sometime in the summer of 1995. Again, the timeline here is a little confusing. His mother later told police the last time she heard from her son was on July 4th, 1995, and that no trace of him has been seen since. His family said he would never drop out of contact for that long. Robert's mother officially reported Robert missing around 10 months after Jared disappeared. According to Shannon, people who know Jared have their own suspicions about what might have happened to Robert Webb. In later court papers, Robert Webb is described as Brandon Wheeler's roommate and best friend. There's an excerpt from the investigators reports that reads, an investigator reported during this time, the aforementioned individual, meaning Robert Webb, was bragging he was a part of the disappearance of Jared Green just before his own disappearance. End quote. So clearly police talk to people. People who said they suspect the same person or people who killed Jared Green might be responsible for Robert Webb's death. Maybe they saw eliminating him as collateral damage. Just another brutal and violent way to tie up loose ends. In 1995, Searcy police, from reading through the case file, seemed to be developing a theory. A theory that Brandon had something to do with Jared's disappearance. But they had no real evidence. Then there was another very strange twist in the case. Shortly after that, investigators interviewed a man named Charles Langley. Charles Langley was in prison doing time on an unrelated matter. When police talked to him, Charles told police that Brandon came to his house to try to sell some crystal meth. And while he and a friend of his were there, they, quote, asked me if I wanted to get rid of someone for them because he owed them $7,500. The guy they wanted me to get rid of was Green. Sometime later in December, they came to my house again and said Jason Green, and he did say Jason, though later Charles said he meant Jared, was no longer a problem, that he had been taken out of the picture. They told me they had grabbed him at the Walmart store and took care of him, end quote. At first, this would seem to be a potentially groundbreaking moment in the case. But as with so many things in this case, it was not all it was cracked up to be. Because later, when another investigator interviewed Charles in 2000, Charles recanted his entire statement. He straight up said he had been lying to get a reduced sentence. And he said that when he gave this information to investigators, he was just repeating these third-hand rumors. He said he didn't know Brandon and Robert. He said that his statement had been, quote, an attempt to shorten my stay or possibly even keep me from going to prison, but most of which was a lie, end quote. This is why it's so important for investigators to ask more detailed questions. Charles had no information that he couldn't have heard through local rumors. In fact, as we mentioned before, this information appears to be pretty unbelievable because I think it's very unlikely that the Walmart parking lot was the primary crime scene where Jared was attacked. I think it's far more likely that car was driven there. But that's the kind of thing that... If you're just hearing stuff based on local rumor, you know a car was found in the Walmart lot, you could just repeat to investigators as a plausible story. On December 31st, 2000, Barron Stafford, who police still had not talked to, spoke to his cousin, who was also his pastor. The pastor would later tell police Barron said he knew vital information about two different murders. He meant Robert Webb and Jared Green. And shortly after that, on New Year's Eve 2000, Baron Stafford reportedly took his own life. After that, Jared Green's case went cold for years. But then, in 2006, there was another shocking twist. Because that was the year that an officer in Portland, Oregon, pulled a car over for a routine traffic stop. There were two men in the car— According to an incident report, the officer noticed crack cocaine in the car and then during the stop, he saw one of these men throw something outside the window a few feet away. It was something black and metal. The officer saw that it was a handgun. After police arrested the two men, they tracked down the gun's serial number. And that gun and that serial number were traced back to Searcy, Arkansas and to Jared Green. So how did the gun show up in Oregon after all those years? Shannon says she has never gotten an answer to that question. In December of 2008, according to the Daily Citizen, detectives searched the grounds of an old well on a property on Pine Canyon Road off Highway 36 near Searcy after they got a tip that Jared's body might be in a well in this old house. But no trace of Jared was found there, just another heartbreak for his family. In 2016, police did another search, They went to a rural property acting on information of a confidential informant. They were looking near a deer stand in some woods. And at that spot, cadaver dogs alerted. Later, the pond was drained. No human remains were found. Police consulted the prosecuting attorney named Rebecca Reed McCoy. After she reviewed the evidence and saw that the dog had alerted, she signed an arrest affidavit for Brandon Wheeler. So just a few months later in 2017, Shannon Green said her family got mind-blowing news. They found out Brandon Wheeler had been arrested and authorities were planning to charge him with Jared's murder and abuse of a corpse. In 2017, Shannon Green and her family learned that Brandon Wheeler, the man they had long suspected of being involved in her brother Jared's disappearance, had been arrested and charged. Brandon was arrested in Ohio and eventually extradited to Arkansas. He was questioned by police and released on bail. Then, in November of 2017, in another complete reversal... The prosecutor decided to not move forward with the charges against Brandon Wheeler. Now, at the time, she said this was because "quote, additional evidence is expected to be recovered and DNA testing would not be completed within the time frame set by the court." End quote. What she actually meant was that she was facing a situation of having to prosecute Brandon Wheeler on a no-body homicide. Just reading between the lines, although this is just a guess on my part, it seems as though The prosecutor decided to roll the dice, thought that evidence would be found when the cadaver dogs alerted and after they drained that pond, but draining the pond failed to secure any additional evidence. In the end, the charges against Brandon Wheeler were dismissed with prejudice, which means if additional evidence ever surfaces, they can be refiled. If the prosecutor had gone forward with the charges and lost, of course, Brandon Wheeler could not be retried based on the double jeopardy rule. So he was suing individual officers and also the entire police department. He sued the officers in their individual and in their official capacities. You can look up the lawsuit online, and we're going to provide a link to the judgment in our source list at the end of the episode. In a nutshell, Brandon Wheeler and his attorneys argued that Brandon Wheeler should never have been arrested and detained on that evidence. They said the officers who wrote up the arrest affidavit Indicated in that affidavit that the cadaver dogs had alerted, but they left out the part about no evidence of a body or any remains being found. Brandon's lawyers also said that the Searcy police officers mentioned this confession they had gotten from Charles Langley, that they knew that later he'd recanted it, but they didn't mention that in their affidavit either. And there were other problems that Brandon Wheeler's legal team claimed that they found in the affidavit. They claimed it was completely misleading. When I talked to Shannon, she discussed the toll that this lawsuit had on the investigation because she says for the two years that Brandon's lawsuit dragged out, the investigation stopped. Now, Brandon Wheeler, by the way, claims he has no involvement in Jared's death. This arrest was completely unjustified. He says he's suffered lost wages and severe mental anguish as a result of being stuck in Arkansas. He said he was subject to unreasonable seizure that officers violated his 4th and 14th Amendments, and that they subjected him to cruel and unusual punishment and excessive bail. He also, by the way, alleges intentional infliction of emotional distress. And this lawsuit is still playing out. In 2020, the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Arkansas sided with Brandon Wheeler. The court found that once you took the what his attorneys called misleading statements out of that arrest affidavit, that those officers did not have probable cause to arrest Brandon Wheeler. And the Court of Appeals affirmed that decision in 2021. I have so many questions about this lawsuit, the way everything played out. I still find myself wondering, why did they arrest Brandon Wheeler in that moment? Apparently, they thought they did have enough to move forward with a no-body homicide. Unfortunately, they miscalculated. And there's more bad news for Shannon's family because the judge ruled that Brandon's interview with the police could not be admitted as evidence. So Shannon and her family only saw five minutes of that video interview in the pretrial hearing. So now we're wondering, what else did Brandon Wheeler say in that interview? We may never know. Brandon Wheeler has left the state of Arkansas and I'm sure he's hired a legal team. I wonder... Have police lost their only chance at getting Brandon Wheeler, or is it possible to get more evidence later? It seems like over the years, Jared's case has had investigators who cared about it. Shannon told me that Jared's case actually became this notorious unsolved case in Cersei, and that when new recruits would join the police force, a detective would sort of present Jared's case as a challenge that the rookies could try to solve.
4: They just basically used to trot that case out and give it to the new guy and just say, here, see if you can do anything with this. But any time they got close, what I was told by the, the, the last investigators on the case, was that any time they got close to something, when they started finding things, like, hey, I really want to go talk to this person, their boss, who's not there anymore, was like, no, just give them a call. And have somebody else do it. Like, they would never, they could never go actually do any investigation outside of like our local area.
3: The case is also complicated by the fact that so many people connected with it have either died or disappeared. As we mentioned earlier, Robert Webb vanished in July of 1995. He's presumed to be dead. Some people out there have a theory that Robert Webb faked his own death to escape the heat, but His family insists that would be completely out of character. He would never do that. And there's been literally no sign of life since 1995. We know that Baron Stafford, who went by the name Felix, reportedly took his own life in 2000. Shannon says that she is not giving up. She says that in 2023, she hoped to have additional private dog teams who would volunteer to investigate. She also said she hoped that now that the lawsuit has mostly played out, that some of the investigators who were so devoted to Jared's case would get some additional resources. She said so far that it hasn't happened.
4: We had two dog teams that were lined up that were willing to search, but for some reason there has been a, a stop. So the original investigating officer, um, who is awesome and I have nothing but respect for, he... Was um, like put on patrol after that mess with Wheeler when they sued, but then he was moved back into CID and he got promoted, and now he's leading a team of investigators. And so I thought when that happened and he had these additional resources that they were going to make, you know, really be able to dedicate time to Jared's case, but that has not been the case. And I don't know why. (laughs) I haven't really been able to talk to them. I don't know if this, because there is a new police chief, um, and so maybe he's restricting their, you know, my access to them. Like It's not that people aren't letting me talk to them. It's just like, I really hoped that with this, with this addition of these three or four other people that
3: we would get some progress. So what can we do next? What needs to happen now? There were four key locations Shannon said needed to be searched. They've searched one, but there's still three more to go. She's hoping to get a dog team out there and keep searching that land. Shannon continues to be the advocate for her brother. She said she is not giving up hope. Shannon said she needs people to come forward. She is begging anyone who knew her brother Jared or had any kind of interaction with him, no matter how small, to please come forward because you never know which piece of information will be key to cracking this case.
4: We need someone to break their silence. We know people are holding withholding information. I think that there are people that have information about what happened that night that will not share, I don't know for a fact, but I believe that Rob Webb's family and sister know something about what happened. Um, he's the guy that went missing about nine months after Jared, who was supposedly Wheeler's best friend.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: And Wheeler acted like he didn't know who he was either. And it's no coincidence to me that these guys both, you know, disappeared. Now, there is speculation that, you know, Webb is not really, he didn't die, that he, you know, just changed his identity and moved on. Mm -hmm. Um, But we have no proof of that. We just know that he hasn't been seen. So I think someone needs to break their silence, right?
3: Someone needs to have courage and come forward. Shannon and her family have just announced a new $25,000 reward. For any information that could help lead to locating her brother Jared's remains. We still need to fill in blanks of the timeline from September 30th, 1994. People have come forward to tell Shannon they saw Jared Green at Walmart that night. We know that he went out, that he met his friend Jason at the country club, and he called his girlfriend. After that, it's a mystery. We don't even know for sure if the person or people who saw Jared at Walmart that night really saw him that night, or were remembering another night. So much time has passed. Shannon said she used to use the slogan, justice for Jared. She said even though she does dream of getting justice for her brother and of the person or people who killed him being held responsible, the main thing she wants to know is where Jared's remains are so that she and her family can find some measure of peace.
4: Nobody is trying to charge anybody with drug charges. Mm-hmm. Nobody cares about that. And I've tried to stress that on my Facebook page a lot because I want people to understand we're looking for Jared's remains. I don't know if we will ever get justice for him, but we can give him the burial he deserves and the closure for us to put him to rest. And that's really all we want is just to know where he's at and, and bring him home. And what I don't, this is the part that You know, there's a lot of this it's sickening but but I don't understand why if someone had to kill him, why they didn't just leave him where he could be found. Because then we would at least know and then I, I wouldn't still be you know, forcing myself on the world to try to tell Jared's story to try to find his remains. Because if people are afraid or they were involved and they don't want this to keep cropping up, then all they have to do is come forward. Yeah. And say, Here's the information I have, I will share it. Nobody's going to jail for it. The only charge that could possibly be applied would be a murder charge. And if you didn't kill him, then there's nothing, no reason why they shouldn't come forward to say what they know.
3: So please, if you know anything, think about if this was your brother, your sister, your parents, lying awake at night, agonizing over what happened to their child, wondering if they could still be out there. Shannon Green just wants to bring her little brother Jared home. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Hell and Gone Murder Line. Hell and Gone Murder Line is a production of School of Humans and iHeart Podcast. It's written and narrated by me, Katherine Townsend, and produced by Gabby Watts. Music is by Ben Salee. And this episode was scored and mixed by Miranda Hawkins. Executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, and Elsie Crowley. If you have a case you'd like me and my team to look into, you can reach out to us at our Hell and Gone murder line at 678-744-6145. That's 678-744-6145.
2: Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
1: Zen nicotine pouches deliver nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime. Which means Zen pairs well with you, your personality, your schedule, and your spontaneity. Zen fits easily into your bag, pocket, and into your life because it's smoke free, hands free, and hassle free. So the only person who will know you have a Zen pouchin is you. Visit zen.com or head to your local convenience store today to find your Zen. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency, where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality,